So I took a job at a, at the time, it was the biggest law firm in Texas, 400 something lawyers called Fulbright and Jaworski. It's got a different name now, but I was there for two years and I was representing an insurance company against this black plumber who fell off a roof and hurt his back. And I lost the case. And I remember giving this guy a check. And I remember thinking, I'm glad I'm doing this because I like him more than the insurance company. (laughs) And so I was like, man, I I think I'm on the wrong side of this deal. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, we talked to Daniela Rabbani about mothers and leaders. Today, I'm thrilled to do another two parts episode with someone else who talks to many great leaders. My guest, Brian Beckham, hosts the Lessons from Leaders podcast. And here we start a conversation that we will finish in an upcoming episode of his podcast. Besides being a podcast host, Brian is a computer scientist and a philosopher. But in what we would refer to as his day job, he's one of the nation's top trial lawyers. So our conversation started with him explaining why trial lawyers are really important and why it is a calling and a mission. Then, as we went through the story of how he went from computer science to law to starting his own firm, We had a fabulous discussion on the principles that he and his partner adopted in building a firm that really and truly puts family first for the founders as well as their employees. So whether you're a founder or you're just thinking about how you want to lead and what role you want work to play in your life, you will find many, many inspiring thoughts here. Enjoy. Brian, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. I'm very happy to have you on the podcast. One of the things that I try to do, and I've had guests do this in other professions, is getting a broader view and an understanding of people of some roles in, you know, in society or in life that may get a bad reputation, but really when people get to understand them more, they, they see the value. And you, know, you are a tort and injury lawyer, a profession that in some cases doesn't always enjoy the best reputation, but I am super excited from everything that I've read to have you here because I think you will help people sort of get a better sense of the fact that there are bad actors and bad cases, but it's actually a role that we really need in society. So welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. And let's start. Why don't you introduce yourself to my audience a little bit where you are and then a little bit about the journey that got you to where you are here. Yeah, sure. So my name is Brian Beckham and I'm a trial lawyer and I am damn proud of it. And I want to address what you said right out of the gate. If you watch movies, the trial lawyers are typically the heroes. I mean, you go all the way back to Paul Newman, The Verdict, the John Grisham movies, you name it. And that's because they take on powerful, dirty interest who put money over human beings. And I am damn proud that I'm a trial lawyer. And here, here's what's happened, okay? This is a fact, okay? People could argue with me all they want, but the insurance companies have spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to convince people that exercising their constitutional rights is a bad thing. Why? Because the insurance companies want to make billions and billions of dollars by collecting your premiums and never paying you a penny. So it's interesting because there's a saying in my community that 
all lawyers are bad except for my lawyer, right? <laughs> like everybody likes their own lawyer, but it's basically a big propaganda that's been going on for 30 years. And most people don't fall for it anymore. Frankly, most people see right through it. They see that these corporations and insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies have been selling products that knowingly kill and maim people. And they, and, and they don't face any consequences. You cannot throw a corporation in jail. You can't throw a pharmaceutical company in jail. Purdue Pharma, great example. The worst drug dealer of the 20 and 21st century was a legal pharmaceutical company named Purdue Pharma. They pushed 5 million opioid prescriptions on a town in West Virginia that had 2,000 total people. So the trial lawyers of people like me were the only defense. Because the cor- here's what the corporations do. They spend a lot of money to bribe politicians to pass laws to protect them. And that's exactly what happens. If you're somebody that's sitting on the side of the street and you get hit by an 18-wheeler, you don't have enough money to bribe the Congress. And that's what it is, by the way. It's bribery. It's not campaign contributions. They're giving them money because they want them to do things that benefit them. And the problem is, is people... You know, your grandmother who gets hit by an 18-wheeler or your child that gets prescribed a drug that gives them birth defects doesn't have enough money to influence the political process like the corporations and insurance companies do. So without without trial lawyers, without people like me, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, big corporations would literally run over everybody. We are the last and only line of defense. So. I just wanted to get that out there quickly because I could not be more proud of what I do. I think what I do is ethical and righteous. And I spent some time representing these big companies. I spent some time at a defense firm. And I'll tell you what, man, it made me sick to my stomach to see what they were doing. And it made me sick to my stomach. I I didn't want to get up in the morning because I was like, why do I want to represent some nameless, faceless insurance company in New York against some family that's been devastated by some corporate negligence. Like, why would I want to do that? Do I want to do that for money? Not really. I don't want to do that for any reason. So that's who I am. I mean, I'm a I'm a trial lawyer. I have kind of an interesting backstory. I'm a computer scientist and a philosopher by training. I have degrees in computer science and philosophy. Ended up becoming a trial lawyer because I tell people when I was studying for my computer science degree, I I didn't want to sit in front of a computer all day long. And now 25 years later, what do I do? Sit behind a computer all day long. <laughs> but in any event, it's been it's been a good journey, kind of a weird journey, but a good one and, and one that I am very, very proud of. I'm interested in the weird twists of the journey that you mentioned. What were the weird twists? I don't have a single lawyer in my family on either my mother's or father's side, as far as I can trace back. I think I'm the first lawyer ever in the family. So when I was growing up, I I grew up in a military family. My dad was an Air Force lieutenant colonel, flew 200 combat missions over Vietnam, won the Distinguished Flying Cross. My grandfather was lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. My uncle was a chief master sergeant. My mother was an Air Force nurse. My older brother was a Marine. I went to Texas A&M and joined the Corps of Cadets. Didn't really have an interest in the military, but that's how I grew up. And so started studying computer science. This was in the early 1990s when, I mean, I was one of the first people to ever have an email address at Texas A&M. I'll bet you didn't have an email address in 1991. Most people didn't. It was kind of useless because there was nobody to email with, but 
I thought I was going to be a computer person. Thought I was going to write programs and build computer software and do things like that. And, you know, I got to a point where there were basically two things. I, I looked around the computer lab and pardon what I'm about to say, but it was a bunch of dork and geeky people sitting there for 12 hours a day typing on a computer. And that's just not my personality. I mean, I was an athlete growing up, still am. I like being outdoors, stuff like that. So that was one reason. But the other reason was in college, I was in a few leadership positions where I was, I was able to help some kids that were facing some very serious university discipline up to and including getting kicked out of school. And they came to me for help and I was able to help them out. And it made me feel good, to be honest with you. I felt great being able to help people out. And if you're a good lawyer, not all lawyers think this way, but if you're a good lawyer, your focus is on what what you can do to help people, help your client. And I, I got a huge kick out of it. I mean, it, and it wasn't, by the way, Dino, just to be clear, it wasn't because I'm some sort of really altruistic person. It was because it made me feel good. It made me when people come to you and say, I need help and you can help them, you get kind of the sense of power. So I, I end up going to law school, and of course, with a computer science degree, I'm immediately being recruited by intellectual property firms that want me to do intellectual property work, patent work, things like that. And I started looking into it, and one of the patent lawyers I was working with told me that, he goes, man, patent law is cool. It's like writing a research paper every week. And I was like, what? <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't want to write a research project every, every week. So it slowly kind of shifted course and ultimately realized that I enjoyed interacting with people, talking to judges, talking to juries, being in court, things like that. Gave me a real rush. Kind of felt like back in my sports days. And so it, it was kind of a strange path, but here we are. <laughs> you mentioned there's like some pretty deep tradition in your family and the military. What was the process and how difficult was it to break from that tradition and, and have that conversation with your family? Wasn't difficult at all. And part of the reason was because I spent four years with a very short haircut, wearing a uniform every single day saluting military officers and enlisted men and women, working with a chain of command, getting up at 5.30 in the morning and going to exercise or drill practice, eventually becoming one of the leaders of the organization and being in charge of 500 college students my senior year. And so I, I, I got as close to being in the military as you could possibly get. In fact, in, in some ways, my experience was harder than some people in the military. My dad's always talking about how there's a huge difference between somebody who sits behind a desk and plays golf all the time and somebody who goes into actual combat. So just because you're in the military doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything very difficult. Now, it certainly can mean that. But but I spent four years in uniform representing my school and my country. So I felt like in a way I would kind of had the military experience. And the other thing is, is by my family, I mean, we weren't poor. But we were not super well off, and I wanted to go make some money. I wanted to be really the first person in my family to focus on making a living such that I could have enough to eventually give back. So it really wasn't that difficult, to be, be totally honest. I, I gave a little bit of con consideration to joining the Air Force and being a pilot, but decided that my path was going to be different. 
So tell me about when did you realize that your path was going to be in law? I understand, you know, the realizing that being in front of a computer all day was not what you wanted to do. But as you started realizing, okay, okay, I want to do something different. How did you discover law as an avenue? Yeah, it was, to be honest, it was kind of random. I don't remember the exact point at which I started considering going to law school, but I, I can tell you that I've always loved to read. I've always loved to write and I've always loved to talk. And once I kind of put those things together, I mean, I was a student columnist for the Texas A&M newspaper for two years. My philosophy degree involved a lot of writing, thinking and talking. And once I kind of put those things together, I was like, man, this is this is what lawyers do. They write, they read and they talk. And that sounded fun to me. I mean, a lot of people you'll hear when you go to law school, the law school in the United States typically is three years. Your first year is called your one L year. And people talk about how horrible it is. And man, I tell you what, I, I loved it. I, I liked all of law school, to be honest with you, because all, all I did was read and write and talk. And that was right up my alley. So I don't remember the exact moment, but once I kind of figured it out, it was it was off to the races. So you knew basically first you were in law school, you were like, yes, I found my calling. I did. And I I did really, really, really good in law school. And it's not because I'm smarter than anybody else or anything like that. I think it was just because I liked it. I mean, I was getting up at 5.30 a.m. to go down to school and read for three hours before class. I, I just enjoyed it. And there's a lesson in there, I think, Dino, and that is if you do something you enjoy, you tend to be better at it, which is not surprising, really. So, you know, I tell my kids, I got one kid in college now, two in high school, and they're talking about majors and stuff. And I tell them, I say, study what you're interested in because it'll be just way better, like – I think there's this, in certain segments of our society, there's this idea that when you go to college, you have to study business or you have to study engineering or you got to study biomedical science. Like, and I, I'm a perfect example of none of that matters, like, except for extremely specific jobs, nobody cares what your college undergraduate major is. In. That's not what it's about. So. You know, for, for me, it was, you know, I said, people say computer science, philosophy and law, that's bizarre. And it, I guess it kind of is. But the reason I did it is because it was all three things I, were, I was interested in. And I did well in all three things, again, not because I'm smarter than anybody else, but because I was doing something that I really enjoyed and really had a passion for. I agree 100 percent with everything that you're saying and in terms both of you know, I think college is about building your brain muscle and 90% of the jobs, people are going to assume you don't know anything anyway, and they're going to train you. So might as well build that brain muscle. I heard it. I was watching a TV show the other day, not, not to interrupt you, but it, it's a, called Tulsa King. It's this mobster deal with Sylvester Stallone. It's a good mobster show and it's kind of funny, but Sylvester Stallone has this monologue in there. My wife and I were watching this last week and it is the best two minute description of why you go to college I've ever heard and it's from this mobster character and basically he says college is four years of demonstrating that you can show up on time that you can finish assignments that you do your tasks that you can stay out of trouble and that you have a little responsibility and what you study doesn't matter <laughs> it, it's a 
you're showing potential employers that you're a responsible human being, right? Mm-hmm. And and right when he said that, I go, bingo, that's what it's all about. <laughs> that is absolutely true. So you went to law school, found that actually law was what you loved, and then you, you did pretty well. So I have to assume you have a lot of options coming out of a law school. How did you decide what branch of law? That's a great question. And I actually do remember very specifically how that worked. So when I went to University of Texas Law School, top 20 law school, I was in the top 10% of my class on the law review, editor of the law review. And as a result, the way it works is these big law firms come in and they interview students. And if you were, if you were like me near the top of your class, then you could get a job with them as long as you weren't a complete weirdo. And that's what everybody did. Like everybody at UT Law School, if you made good grades, you were going to big law. That That's pretty much the path. And I didn't know any better. I mean, I was like, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing. Everybody else is going to a big law firm. That seems to be the route. I guess I'll do that, too. So I took a job at a at the time. It was the biggest law firm in Texas, 400 something lawyers called Fulbright and Jaworski. It's got a different name now, but I was there for two years and I was representing an insurance company against this black plumber who fell off a roof and hurt his back. And I lost a case. And I remember giving this guy a check. And I remember thinking, I'm glad I'm doing this because I like him more than the insurance company. <laughs> and so I was like, man, I, I think I'm on, I think I'm on the wrong side of this deal. And th- the other thing is, is when I was 10 years old, my mother died of breast cancer. It was a result of some extremely, extremely egregious medical malpractice from an Air Force doctor. Misdiagnosed her four times. She ended up dying after about a three-year struggle. And my dad hired a lawyer and sued the United States Air Force and won. Now, I was too young to remember this, but I think subconsciously, the idea that you could do that was in the back of my head. And now it's 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 really amazing because I'm doing for other families what this lawyer did for my family, and it feels great. So you you are the big law firm. You realize you're sort of like on the wrong side of where you want to be. How do you get to the right side? After two years, I left and joined a small plaintiff's firm, which is which is the side I'm on now. And I had two bosses. One of my bosses was a terrific guy. The other boss was the worst human being I've ever met in my life. Just a horrible person. The kind of guy that would send you emails on Christmas Day talking about how horrible you were. The kind of person, if you didn't work seven days a week, tell you you suck and you would fail. A good lawyer, but just an awful human being. And But it was, it was, it was a really good experience, Dino, because I got to see one lawyer doing it what I thought was a great way. And I saw no lawyer doing what I thought was the worst way to possibly do it. So I could learn from both of them. And I I was able to stick it out there for two years. And after two years, this guy walks into my office. He was another associate at the firm and he goes, Hey, I'm leaving. I said, really? I said, so am I. (laughs) He goes, well, you leave first. I go, no, 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 you leave first. Cause if I leave first, you won't leave. Anyway, this guy leaves the firm. I leave the firm the next day. And within a couple months, we had gotten together and started our own firm. Never even talked about it before. That guy's name is Vuk Vujasinovic, and he's been my law partner now for 20 years. And we've run this law firm for 20 years. So basically, we were both in this in this firm, which, which was just horrible in terms of like the way that the main partner treated everybody. 
and we we had just both been fed up and it, it's been really cool because we both learned from that experience and we've designed our firm to basically be the exact opposite. <laughs> I think this is an area that I'd like to explore a little more. So you start a new firm with your partner and you have this bad model in front of you. As you were thinking about, we want to do something different. What are some of like the more important and uh, sort of intentional decisions that you made about how you were going to build and run your firm? What happened to me was I ran into a guy named Ben Glass, who was a lawyer, still still around, also had a marketing firm. I joined his marketing mastermind, and he ended up having one of the biggest influences of any male in my life, other than maybe my dad, my high school basketball coach. And the first thing that I learned from Ben was, you see, most people have, what I'm about to say, most people have it backwards. What most people do is they take a job, and then they design their life around their job. And Ben said, do it the other way around. Figure out what you what you want your life to look like and then fit your job into your life. And a lot of people don't feel like that's even possible. A lot of people feel like, especially lawyers and doctors and accountants and professionals, think that there's a certain path you have to walk. And Ben taught me that you didn't have to walk that path. So that was the first thing he taught me. The second thing he taught me, I have three kids, like I said earlier, and they're, they come first, period. No question. If somebody invites me out for drinks or business or something, and one of my kids has a sporting event, it doesn't take any energy to decide. The kids come first, period. It makes it really easy to make those kind of decisions. And so, you know, I've spent the past 14, 15 years in Colorado for a month or more in the summer with my children because I'd specifically designed my practice to be able to do that. And I remember about eight years ago, walking around in downtown Vail on Wednesday at two with my kids, looking around and thinking, I don't have as much money as some of these lawyers, but I'm more wealthy than they are. Because while I'm walking around with my kids in Vail in the middle of July with 70 degrees, they're grinding away in the office until midnight and don't even know their kids' names. And so that's probably, those are probably the two major ways in which our practice differs and how we kind of designed it in a different way. And I'll tell you, by the way, my partner also spends now most of the summer in Colorado. It's a lot easier now with remote stuff and Zoom. But when we first started doing it, it wasn't quite as easy. We really had to plan ahead. We really had to schedule ahead. But but the point was we were able to do it. And and so that was probably the, in other words, I, I'm not a slave. My business serves me. I don't serve my business. And how about the, do you have systems in place in the business to, to make sure that this culture passes through to all the people who are working for you? What are some of the things that you did sort of to, to build this as a family first business for everyone that's on board? The number one thing I think any leader can do to set the tone is walk the walk. You can make all the noises out of your mouth you want, but if you're telling your employees family comes first and then when they have something going on with their family, you're giving them a hard time about it, the the message that's coming out of your mouth is not consistent with what you're actually doing and they won't listen to you. So, you know, the other thing, of course, is like, if I'm up at the office till midnight on a Friday while my son is playing a basketball game, 
they see that and they see that I'm not living up to the the same standards that I'm preaching. Another thing that, and then this is some, this is going to sound kind of probably stupid, but I'm very, very proud of what I'm about to say. So I've had the same office manager for almost 15 years now. And when she came to work for me, she was very overweight. I was a little overweight myself, but now she is in phenomenal shape. Everybody at my firm has a healthy lifestyle. We focus on a healthy lifestyle. A lot of us are, you know, play different sports or hike or stuff like that. But there's a not only a culture of family first, a culture of the firm as a family, but also a culture of having a like a healthy lifestyle. Like none of this stuff matters. None of the business matters if everybody's sick or if they're in poor health or if they're eating bad or not being able to exercise. So, but, but the primary thing I would say, Dino, is you better walk the walk. I mean, it's, it's like what they say about kids. I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before, but kids don't, they don't listen to what you say. They, they don't really care what you say. They watch what you do. That's what they care about. That is very true. So the other side of building a culture out of the firm that is different is, you know, the people you work with, the client and cases that you take on. Can you talk a little bit about that? And and I think that's one of the reasons why I asked you to be on the show. It was very clear to me from everything that I learned about you before we met today that there is a very genuine belief in the mission, if you will. So how does that translate in your in your client selection? It permeates everything we do in every case. So it's and it really starts out at the very beginning when somebody calls me with a legal issue, one of the first things we do is figure out whether whether we're, they're going to get along with me and my staff. I mean, I don't care if you got a 10 million dollar case if you're rude or you're an asshole to my staff, you're fired. My staff comes first. A, a lot of people will say, you know, business leaders will say, clients come first, clients come first, clients come first. That's nonsense. My clients don't come first, ever. The people that work for me come first. Because I'm going to be with them. <laughs> when your case is over, I'm still going to be working with my people. And if my people feel like I put them first, they're going to work harder on my clients' cases. So it's a win-win all the way around. So it starts at the very beginning, making sure, I mean, you may have a great case, but there might be something about your personality or there might be something about my personality that you don't like. So we wouldn't necessarily be a good fit. So the first thing we try to do is we try to make sure personality wise, the clients fit well with the firm. And then after that, once we've accepted you as a client, what that basically means is we believe in your case and we believe in you. And it really doesn't take a lot of effort after that. If you believe in the case and you believe in the client, truly, you're not just saying that, you're going to put in the effort. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to work hard. If, it's just, if you're just doing it for a paycheck or to bill some hours, it, it's, it's not the same thing. So, and we're fortunate because we, we get far more phone calls on cases than we could possibly accept. We have, we, we accept a limited number of cases for very specific reasons. So we can spend the time that's necessary. A lot of lawyers, you're just a number, you're an assembly line. They don't even know who you are. And we try to keep it much smaller, very selective about who gets to be one of our clients. And if you, 
meet that criteria, then you're you're absolutely going to get the best legal representation in the country. Does the idea of keeping it small also, is that reflected also like in the pace that you chose to grow at as a firm? You said, you know, earlier, you know, when I'm in Vail, I may not be, I may not have as much money as some other lawyers, but I'm wealthier. Did you make, and did you and your partner make a, a conscious decision to grow media maybe at a slower pace that you could have grown at because you wanted to keep the culture and the mission on pace, if you will? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was that intentional. I will say this, Dino, this is a struggle I think all business owners have, wh whatever industry you're in. It's that balance between having enough employees to to execute the mission of the business while at the same time not having so many employees that you can't make a good profit and everybody can't benefit from the business. And let me be real clear about something, okay? The purpose of business is to make money. And nobody in business should apologize that for that for a second. My firm, VB Attorneys, has to make money in order for me to do all the other things I want to do, right? So you business owners out there, don't ever apologize for making money. Don't ever ap apologize for focusing on the bottom line. That is absolutely necessary or none of this is possible. But beyond that, The, the the balance is, you know, I, I could have a 50-lawyer law firm if I wanted to, okay? Just like a lot of businesses could double their staff and stuff like that. I could have a 50-person law firm and be very profitable, right? I have a 15-person law firm, and the reason for that is because if I had a 50-person law firm, I would have to hire uh, probably another layer of management. I'd have to hire another layer of accounting I would be much more busy managing the business as opposed to doing the actual practice of law, which a lot of people love. Like a lot of people want that in their business. They want to grow the business. They want to have a lot of employees. They want to get big, et cetera, et cetera. Not me. I, you know, I want to be able to go play golf and train jujitsu and hang out with my kids and have a good meal with my wife and, and that sort of thing. So I, I've just never really been interested in having a big firm and my partner hasn't either. So what we fight the same battle that every other business or the, you know, trying to find the balance between having the right amount of employees. And by the way, you got to have enough employees that the employees you have aren't breaking their backs every single day to get stuff done. So you got to make sure that your employees aren't overloaded. So you have to have enough, but you don't want to have so much that it starts impacting the bottom line. And that's a, that, that's just part of, part of being a business owner. Like everybody that owns a business has to make those decisions. So you said something really interesting, the idea that some people enjoy the part of managing the business and some people likely enjoy the practice of the business. It sounds like you're spending the bulk of your time in the business on actual cases and more than managing the firm. When did you realize that that was your calling or your preference? Was there a moment? I actually think that I spent about half my time on the business and half the time in the business. And, you know, I, I've actually given some thought, Dino, to pulling out completely from the day-to-day -day practice of law and just working on the business. And I've gotten pretty close a couple of times to doing that, but I, I miss being a lawyer. I miss interacting with clients. I miss the feeling of winning a case. And so it's a, for me, it's a balance, too. Like I'm trying to balance 
being a lawyer with being a business owner because I that's I have both roles and and in my firm I run the business. My partner my partner loves the legal side of it and he's very very good at it. One of the best and he loves it. He does not like the administrative part of it that much. And so and I kind of do like the marketing and administrative. I do ton I do most of the marketing and most of the administration and all of the technology and I actually kind of enjoy that. Again, it's a balance. I'm trying to do both. And sometimes I do a little more administration. Sometimes I do a little more trial lawyer. Was there a moment or like a case or an event where you find yourself in a situation where you had to make a decision that was the right decision for the business and for, so for the values that you had in the business, but was a short-term bad decision for the business and how did you navigate that i've made decisions that didn't turn out the way i wanted them to turn out but i don't know that i've had, ever made any the only bad decisions i think I, I have made and i've talked about this a lot on my leadership podcast is there were times when my instincts were telling me to do one thing and i didn't listen to them and maybe did something else and every time i don't listen to my instincts i i tend to make bad decisions and There's a lot of people out there who maybe don't trust their instincts as much as they should. And and I would count myself among that group of people for a very long time. But your instincts are there for a reason. Like if your stomach is telling you something seems off, it probably is. But your stomach is telling you, you know, you got that feeling in your belly. Hey, this sounds really good and exciting. Most of the time it is. Most time it's good decisions. So And the other thing is, I don't really look at failure the way m many people do. Like, failure to me is not a negative thing. Failure to me is a learning opportunity, and it's a better learning opportunity than success. So you, you really do want to, you want to make some bad decisions, and you want to fail, quote, quote, fail, because that's how you learn. And the trick behind it is, Just make sure that you don't make a decision or fail in such a way that's existential that will end the business. It, it, give yourself enough room, and by the way, give your employees enough room where they can feel like they can learn from failure, learn from some poor decisions. I mean, I've told people this story for, for two decades now. When I'm done with a trial, if I win or lose, I have a note where I write down all the stuff that happened and what I thought about the trial when I win cases, my note typically says something like, you're awesome. You're the best. You're a great lawyer. Keep doing what you're doing. I don't learn anything. When I lose, it's like five pages of you need to do this better, work on this better. You could have done this a little bit better, this a little bit better. It's the same. I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, purple belt. And it's the same thing in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And when I get submitted, that's not quote failure. If somebody starts choking me out and I have to tap, That's a learning experience. Like I just learned that whatever happened right there, the other person's quote BJJ argument was better than mine. And conversely, if I go out there on the BJJ mats and I choke somebody unconscious or armbar them or something, I'll learn something, but not nearly as much if I'm <laughs> as if I'm on the receiving end of that. So something about getting choked really clarifies the mind. <laughs> I think that's a great point. If you were to summarize 
you know, for somebody who is starting their own business and and thinking about being a leader. And I know you you have a, a podcast on leadership, so there's a lot of lessons probably you've heard. What are the three most important traits that people should think about? I was asked by an Air Force colonel who listened to my podcast to give a speech on leadership to the United States or to some officers in the United States Air Force. I've now given a speech twice. The speech is a distillation of the leadership lessons that I've learned from the people I've interviewed on my podcast. And I've, I've interviewed sports heroes, military veterans, best-selling authors, psychologists, doctors, accountants, you name it. And I, I, what I've seen in doing this podcast for two and a half years now is that there's patterns. Number one principle of leadership. Number one principle. Leading is about serving other people. If you want to be a good leader, it's not about serving yourself. That is the number one principle. The number two principle is trust your instincts. If you're a leader, you're there for a reason. Usually it means because you got good instincts. I think sometimes when people become leaders, they have a tendency not to trust their instincts. So the second most important thing I learned about leadership was to trust your instincts. I've got I've actually got the five fundamental principles of leadership, but the third fundamental principle of leadership is like we were talking about earlier. People really don't care what you say. They care what you do. And I learned this starting in my high school sports and then got it more in the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M and have seen it even more in my business. Uh, people don't really care what you know until they know how much you care and that they want to they want to see you actually like if you're telling them to do something they want to see that you're willing to do the same thing i got very very good advice as a young lawyer from a partner who said every once in a while i'll go make coffee make my copies staple things do all the stuff that my secretary and paralegal does because i feel it's my responsibility to be able to do every single job in this firm now i don't he doesn't do it every single time that would be silly but the point is it's the same thing with my Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor who's been on my podcast. He says, the only person that's re irreplaceable at the gym is me. And he's right because he's the only one that can do everything. So anyway, leadership is about serving others. Leadership is about trusting your instincts. And leadership is about walking the walk, not just talking the talk. That's a great summary and an excellent point to transition from the professional to the personal side of the conversation. But before we do, Brian, where can my listener find you? Law firm is vbattorneys.com. That's V as in Victor, B as in Brian, attorneys, all one word, vbattorneys.com. My personal podcast, and uh, I, I'm also a writer, I have some leadership articles, is brianbeckham.org. And Beckham is spelled a little bit unusually. It's Brian with an I, B-E-C-K-C-O-M dot org. And then I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm kind of on Twitter, although I'm pretty much done with Twitter at this point. I think it's a complete cesspool and Elon's made it worse. So probably not going to be on Twitter that much longer. But yeah, so m most of the major socials, vbattorneys.com and brianbeckham.org. Thank you. So now, as I said, let's move to the personal side of the podcast. What is a passion that you have outside of work and how has it informed your work or your life in general? So my passion for the past three years has been Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I turned 50 a month ago, started jiu-jitsu at 47. I'm now purple belt. I'm trained five times a week. 
I could talk about it forever. We do a whole other talk a podcast about jujitsu, but maybe the number one thing that jujitsu has taught me is that chasing happiness is a recipe for unhappiness. So there's things you can do. Everybody can do to make themselves temporarily happy. Drink a glass of wine, smoke a joint, watch some streaming program, eat a good meal, all that stuff. And that's, and there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff, by the way, but that's temporary. True and true joy, true happiness does not result from chasing happiness. It results from chasing purpose, like chasing a goal or a purpose in life. And the harder that purpose or goal is, the more joy you will feel. And I learned that at the very beginning of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I got a stripe on my white belt. I was driving home at 47 years old, crying under uh, uncontrollably with joy. I could not, I couldn't stop crying. It was ridiculous. I called my dad up. I go, dad, I can't stop crying. I'm so happy. And it was because it getting a belt promotion in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is no bullshit, Dino. I mean, you have to work your you-know-what off. It's not like a lot of other martial arts where they hand away the belts for, you know, a certain you can basically buy a belt. If you're a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that's basically 10 years of blood, sweat, and tears. And same thing with getting a strike. So there's no way to cheat. There's no shortcuts. You have to earn it. And earning it at 47 was particularly difficult. <laughs> I had to get in shape. I wasn't completely out of shape, but I certainly wasn't in jujitsu shape. But what it taught me was, like I said, true joy, true happiness results from taking on different difficult challenges. And I needed a reminder that, I mean, you know, when I, right before I started jujitsu, I was in a pretty good station in life. Plenty of money, great job, great family, great kids, golf course five minutes away, single digit, good friends, nothing to complain about, successful in every measure. But I wasn't very happy and I couldn't figure out why. And it took it took something like jujitsu to, to, to teach me that success is dangerous. Like people that are real successful have to be really cautious about resting on their laurels, not pushing themselves anymore. Because let me tell you something, if you've got all the money in the world and a great family and great life and a great house and play golf all you want, spend time in Colorado, that's what people will do. Like that, that they, they'll, they'll forget that they have to challenge myself. And I had forgotten that, Dino. And jujitsu reminded me that a lot of people do CrossFit or they do a marathon or triathlons or, you know, you name it. But, the point is you got to find something that's hard, something that that's that's meaningful. I told my son when he left for college, he's in the Corps of Cadets, too. I said, I, I hope two things for you, son. I said, I hope you make uh, a grade point average with a three in front of it. And I hope the core is hard because the only way for it to be meaningful is for it to be hard. If it's easy, it's not meaningful. That's probably the biggest personal lesson I've learned and last three to four years. That's great. So next question. Um, this is my favorite question of the podcast is every era has like business expressions or jargon that lose their meaning. What is the one expression that drives you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think about the way people put this, but 
there's two that come to mind. The first one that comes to mind is always be closing. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of the ABC, always be closing. Oh, yes. That idea is from Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin spoke that he's some sort of salesperson in that show. But the implication there is always be working or always be working on your business. And I think that notion is misguided. I mean, let me just ask you this question, Dino. Isn't it bizarre that for 50 years, the way to be successful as a lawyer was to sacrifice your health, your time with your family, your time with your friends, in order to spend eight years representing some nameless, faceless corporation that doesn't even know who you are, only to become a partner and work twice as hard until you either retire because you're unhealthy or you retire because they kick you out and give you a gold watch and nobody cares. Like, that's the most bizarre thing. I like, when, <laughs> when did we get to the point in our society where we thought that should take priority over everything else? So, the, the, you know, whatever saying has to do with like, I, I don't know about you, but I found that if I work 10 hours a day, I get less done than if I work three hours. If I work three hours of super focused time, that is better than sitting behind a desk for 10 hours, screwing around, pretending like I'm working. So, and, and I'll tell you the other thing is, I don't know if you've seen this, Dino, but especially after quarantine, Especially, but my observation is there's there's this change in the air, change in the zeitgeist, where people are start finally starting to wise up and realize sacrificing your health and family and your life for some job is stupid. Like, who said we had to do that? I mean, everybody's complaining about, you know, people aren't going back to work. Well, if your job is to pick up trash for minimum wage, why would you do that? Like that? Of course, they're not going back to work. Would you go back to work? <laughs> I would go back to work. And so companies, you know, these companies are complaining and moaning. And I would say, well, maybe if you paid them more and gave them a little better benefits, they'd come back to work. Maybe it's your fault that these maybe you've been exploiting people for so long that they're finally starting to wise up. I mean, I can tell you in my firm. The reason people stay at my firm is not because I pay them more than everybody else. It's because they like working with me and they see that my values are consistent with theirs. It's not because I order them to. It's not because they have to. It's because they want to. And I think our society has changed dramatically in the last three years such that if, if you're a business owner and you want to hire young people, it you better not tell them you're going to be working seven days a week for 20 years. At the end of the deal, you get a gold watch. You, you want to tell them there's something more to it. Like there's a meaning behind your work. So that, that those are probably the biggest things that come to mind. I agree with everything that you just said. So <laughs> final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you go the body route, you can give me a recipe or a drink that it's meaningful or that inspires you. Or if you want to go the soul route, a book, a movie, a piece of music, a painting, a play, something that inspires you man that's a great question and there's a lot of people books movies <laughs> recipes <laughs> that really 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 inspire me and maybe this is because what this is what's been on my mind lately so I, so I've, I've been a reader my whole life probably read 100 plus books a year and this year i've decided i'm going to read five of the top 50 novels ever written and so right now I'm reading Anna Karenina, 
by Leo Tolstoy and Underworld by Don DeLillo. And I'm also reading a book by an author named Cormac McCarthy. He just came out with uh, two books together, one called The Passenger and one called Stella Morris. Stella Morris is one of the most amazing, inspirational books I've ever read in my life. Cormac McCarthy's 95 years old. I can't believe he wrote this book in his 90s. But the very end of the book is basically him signing off and saying, it's time for me to go. It's truly, truly deep. But I used to be one of these people that read 50 self-help books a year. And, I, and I'll still read stuff like that from time to time. But I actually think great literature is far is a far better way to learn about the human condition. Uh, they're far better self-help books than, than any nonfiction book will ever be. So what inspires me is great literature. And here's the thing about it, Dino, okay? Think about it this way, okay? This morning I got up, kids went off to school, and what I try to do is I try to read for pleasure for 30 minutes to an hour every morning before I start my work day. This morning, I was in Russia during uh, before the Bolshevik Revolution, spending time with Russian aristocracy. And then I spent about 15 minutes in Russia this morning. And then I spent another 15 minutes at Ebbets Field in the 1960s when the Brooklyn Dodgers won the pennant. How amazing is it that you can take uh, something made from a tree, set it on your lap, open it up and be transported through time, through space and go anywhere you want with some of the brightest minds ever. I mean, how amazing is it, Dino, that I can pick up a book written by Albert Einstein and literally have Albert Einstein's thoughts put into my brain. I I think books are the most amazing technology ever. And I, and I continue to be blown away by how miraculous it is that we could literally take someone's thoughts who has long since passed away and place their thoughts into our brain. I mean, think about that. It, it, isn't that just the most amazing thing ever? <laughs> I will not disagree with any of that. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you for being so thoughtful. I really appreciate it. It's been a real joy, Dino. Love your show. Love you. And thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or review. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo. To find all the links for Brian, go to the episode page of the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a Susan Cattaneo song. It's called Little Big Sky, from her album Heaven to Heartache. 
spending time in these city blocks Been rushing around, don't even have time for my thoughts These streetlights don't sparkle like the southern stars do Skyscrapers feel like they're jailing the moon Ask myself, what am I doing here? Cause life makes more sense when the blacktop disappears I need a little big sky where I can watch the whole sunrise I wanna feel the warm wind blowing my troubles away I need a little simple, could use a little easy And miles and miles of nothing but miles I need a little big sky I need a little big sky Gonna pack my bag Put the top down and drive Feel my soul exhale when I cross that county line Gonna hug my mama, drink some sweet iced tea Feel the world slow down from her front porch swing That red dirt road always leads me here And life makes more sense when the black top disappears I need a little big sky Where I can watch a whole sunrise I wanna feel the warm wind blow When my troubles away I need a little simple Could use a little easy And miles and miles of Nothing but miles Big sky 